Um, welcome again to uh, Cornerstone Pickle. My name is Michael. I have the, uh, the honor and, and humble privilege to fill in uh, for Jamie this week, and it's good to see everybody back. Uh, it's weird missing a week in the snow. Um, it feels like it's been a long time. Um, if you would, turn with me to 119, Psalm 119. And that's page number 514 in the chair Bible, if, if you're using that. And as always, if you don't own a Bible, just go ahead and put your name in that one and take it home. And that's our gift to you. And as you turn there, uh, Psalm 119, we are in the middle of a series looking at the anatomy of a Christian. Uh, as this sign says, uh, we... A little while back, last year, we did the anatomy of a church, and so now in this year, we're kind of exploring what it means to be a Christian at an individual level, and and we're using the analogy of the human body to do that. Um, In the first two parts of the series, um, we saw how the gospel is like our skeletal system. It gives us structure, um, and it holds us up. And then we saw how prayer is like our respiratory system. We saw how Jesus teaches us to pray, and we saw you know, how we breathe in the word of God and respond to that by breathing out adoration and confession and thanksgiving and, and supplication and prayer based on his word and what he's done for us. And so this morning, we're going to look at the analogy of, kind of using the analogy of the, the digestive system and the role that God's word plays in a Christian's life. You know, as we sit here this morning, I think we've all had that feeling of hunger, of physical hunger. We know what it's like to crave food. I think in the same way, we've all been spiritually hungry as well. So what is it that can satisfy that hunger? And that's what we want to look at this morning. So again, we're at Psalm 119, verses 103 and 104. It's those two verses. We'll read that now. It says, How sweet are your words to my tastes. Sweeter than honey to my mouth, through your precepts I get understanding, and therefore I hate every false way. I'll pray again before we get started. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We ask that you make your name great this morning. This isn't for anything else but for your glory, and we know that through your glory all things work together for good. So I ask that your will be done in this place this morning as you have your will done in heaven. I ask that you give us bread, the true bread that comes from heaven, your son Jesus, that we might have understanding. Father, I just pray that you use these words to encourage us, to lift us up, and that I don't distract from what your people need to hear. In your name I pray these things, amen. So how does one starve to death? It's kind of a gruesome picture. Uh, First, your body will burn up all of the sugar and carbohydrates and all the good things that we like to eat. Um, And once that's gone, your body will move to burning fat by turning it into glycerol and fatty acids. And so far, so good. You have fuel. But then once the fats are gone, your body will turn to proteins as its major source of energy. And if you don't have anything coming into your digestive system, your body will turn on itself. It'll start to consume itself. Your muscles will be quickly depleted, and the cells in your body will start to degenerate as they are being burned as fuel. 
The effects of this are apathy, withdrawal, lack of energy, and then eventually your body kind of runs out of options. The actual immediate cause of death in somebody who starves to death is not just lack of food. If it's not disease or infection, it's actually a heart attack, and that's brought on by extreme tissue damage and and electrolyte imbalances. And we kind of all know this, right, that if you don't eat, we start to deteriorate, get hangry. But sometimes I wonder why we're so slow to recognize when we're on the verge of starvation spiritually. We become apathetic and we withdraw. We lack energy to pray. We lack energy to read our Bibles. And when we, st- when we find ourselves starving in our Christian walk, I think we need to ask ourselves, when is the last time I tasted God's word? We must do as the writer of this psalm does. Go to God's word and say, how sweet are his words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So I have a proposition based on these two verses, that in the same way that we need physical food to grow and act, we need to consume the word of God for spiritual growth and for fruitful action. So as we read the verses in this text, we saw how the writer uses the analogy of tasting the word of God. And after he tastes the sweetness that it gives, there's a digestion that happens. We see that he gets understanding. He's processing it, meditating on it as the word is consumed. And then just as food gives us energy that produces growth in physical ability, action, The word of God meditated on and understood produces something. The result of the author's tasting and understanding God's word is that he started to hate every false thing. His heart changes and responds, which inversely also means that he loves what is right and he loves what is true. It's a result of consuming and digesting God's word. So I have three main topics or points in this passage, based in this passage and on that proposition. The first point is the consumption of God's word. That's verse 103. Uh, Second point or topic is the digestion of God's word. That's the first part of verse 104. And then as I said, the, the third point or topic is the action produced by God's word. And that's the end of verse 104. So point number one, the consumption of God's word. Verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Here's something that you may have heard before as a Christian or as someone who's gone to church. A Christian ought to read their Bible. But a question you might ask if you be so bold is why? Why should we do that? And isn't the answer kind of obvious that if you, if you don't read the Bible, then you're not a very good Christian? Is that the answer? How many of you have felt that way? Honestly, I have. How many of you, how many of you have felt guilt in some way over the feeling of obligation that you open up the Bible and read it? Um, that may or may not have been when your reading plan took you through the book of Numbers 
But even even in you know, I find it amazing myself that the glories that are like in a book of Romans or Ephesians, and you say, "Oh, you know, I have to read that today." That's my that's my reading plan. But you don't get that sense in this verse, do you? In one hundred three, that that this is something being done out of obligation. He says, "How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth." So the real reason you're encouraged to read. The Bible as Christians is not because God has it on his checklist of requirements that things you have to do in order to enter heaven. As a Christian, Jesus has already fulfilled the requirements that you need to get into heaven. You should read the Bible because you need it and it's for your own good and your own pleasure. From what you see that the Father has orchestrated all things for his glory and you belong to him as adopted sons and daughters, having put your faith in Jesus. You have joy there. You have purpose and you have comfort there in God's word. You have explanation and answers to the world's greatest questions and mysteries. There are historic accounts of truth for you historians. There are these amazing acts of God. There's war and drama and poetry and songs. These are all things that the world is trying to push to entertain you. These are things that you need to read, and it's all the truth of God. And I understand it doesn't always seem that way. I understand that. When you're reading through Second Chronicles and you're being told about how many cores of crushed wheat the woodsmen are going to get for chopping down wood for the temple... You might question what I just said, that it's all entertaining. And, but it does all fit together. It's all part of one unified story. And I would ask you to start maybe by cherishing small parts. One at a time, memorizing verses like we find in Psalm 23. You get a sense of how sweet these words are. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Verses like John three sixteen, That God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish and have eternal life. My soul needs restored. I need eternal life. We find that in the Word of God. Sometimes I read Romans eight thirty-seven to thirty-nine to myself. It sounds like this: In all things, I am more than a conqueror through Him who loves me. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's good to hear when the TV news tries to convince you that everything is going to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> that we have a father who is in control. That nothing can separate us from him. And you'll see how sweet are those words. So how does this apply in our lives on a daily basis? I first want to encourage you 
I think you can think of it this way. There's kind of two ways you can tell somebody that they have to do something. You know, one way is to say you have to go get your taxes done or else there's going to be consequences. The IRS is going to come after you, so you better do it. It's not very encouraging, but I think oftentimes that's how we are told to read the Bible. That, that, like I said, you're not a good Christian if you don't, or you're going to hell if you don't read your Bible. But another way, and it seems how the author of this psalm might put it, is to say that you, you have to go to this new restaurant that just opened. The food is amazing and you'll love it. Or you have to see this movie that is so good. Or you, you have to hear this new song that my favorite artist released. Or, or you have to read this new book. I think we should approach the Bible this way. Pray that God would give you joy and wisdom and understanding through your reading. And then make a plan. When I was younger, you know, younger teenager, I think, I was always hesitant to make a plan for reading the Bible because I didn't want it to feel like it was an obligation. I didn't want to feel like it was forced. I thought that if it wasn't from the heart, then maybe I shouldn't do it because God wouldn't be pleased with it. And because of that, I was very hungry for a lot of years. Then eventually, as, as kind of starvation was setting in, as much as I hated the idea of New Year's resolutions, I made a plan that I would read the Bible in a year. And I knew that my heart wasn't in it, even if my mind was. And so I prayed. I prayed that God would grant me a desire to stick with it on a daily basis. And, and this is just my experience. I'm not saying this is a formula for everybody. But God was gracious to answer that prayer. I started out in January 1st, or on January 1st, and, and I found myself kind of mid-March. I was wrapping up Revelation 22. I couldn't get enough. It was like a buffet with my favorite foods, and I never got full. And I was being filled, for sure, but I never had that sense of being full as it returned over and over again with plate after plate. So like I said, your story is not mine. God was gracious to me in that time of my life to answer that prayer. Um, now my current reading plan um, is one psalm a day, one proverb a day, and I, I read about five verses. I'm in Matthew right now and, and journal on that. In my journal, I write the date that I'm reading it, and if you were to go and look at my journal, you would see that there are dates missing. Um, I didn't fail God on that day, but I did miss out on spending time with my Father who loves me infinitely, and I suffered some fatigue from a meal missed. So I encourage you to make a reading plan. That's, that's the first point, is to consume God's Word. Make a reading plan. We have one on our website, there are apps and all kinds of things like that. You can download, buy books. And if you, you, know, if you need help with that, ask one of the pastors, Jamie, Brent, anybody here. Make a plan. Pray through it. Pray that God would grant you a desire to be in his word. Point number two. Once we've read God's word, we move into the digestion of God's word. Verse 104 starts this way. It says, through your precepts I get understanding. So have you ever been reading something 
and thinking about something else completely different. About two or three pages in, you realize, I have no idea what I just read. I've heard that happens to people. (laughs) Even though you looked at every word, you know you read it, you have no idea what you just read. A little more gruesome, there are digestive diseases that, in a way, do that same thing. They prevent your body from absorbing the nutrients that you eat. They leave you malnourished and often very sick. So if your goal of reading the Bible is just to get that check mark and say that, yeah, I read it, then you can accomplish that goal pretty easily without ever digesting anything or gaining anything from it at all. It would just pass through you and it would leave you malnourished and sick. So when you read God's word and consume it, ask yourself, what are you absorbing? The psalmist says that through God's precepts, he gets understanding. The writer is absorbing understanding through the reading of God's word. You might ask, how do you start to do that? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. First, as I said, you pray for wisdom in it, and then you slow down. You ask questions of the text. Jamie had mentioned the Living Stones groups that we have, and that's exactly what they're in place for, So slow down, open your Bible, read it, ask questions. Um, some of us may not be as familiar, so what I want to do real quick in this, this point is, is do that in this passage. We read the text, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. So first question, a question you can ask of this text is, is what do you see in it? What stands out to you? And I think based on the series that we're doing and the reason I chose this text, it's, we see that one thing that stands out is the psalm is comparing the reading of God's word to taste, to consuming. I was looking over this text with a friend of mine, uh, and he observed that this theme is throughout the Bible. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, after God had delivered his people from Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, and they had complained about how hungry they were and, and how they would have better, been better off slaves in Egypt. And So God rains down manna from heaven and feeds them. And then in verse 3 of Deuteronomy chapter 8, God says why he let them hunger. Speaking of God, it says, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So your physical hunger that you feel, that you feel depleted and you need something, is meant to remind you of your hunger for God's word which we see in this psalm, this theme that there's something sweeter than honey. And amazingly, you go to the New Testament and the crowds are questioning Jesus and they say, you need to show us some kind of sign to prove that you are who you say you are. They said that God showed us a sign through Moses by raining down manna. They're referring to this Deuteronomy chapter 8 and the Exodus And Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. 
So one thing we see in this text from observing it is that there is a theme throughout the Bible that we need more than food to live. We need the word of God. That is so much sweeter than anything we can taste here. And it's interesting, I noticed this too, that in, in the Gospel of John, this word that is sweeter than honey, John says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So even in this psalm, we get a glimpse of how all Scripture speaks of Jesus, that he's the true satisfier of our soul. Just observations, there's many more. We could ask another question. What do these verses tell us about the nature of God? One thing is that God has given us his word uh, in order that we taste it. We have it in front of us. That's an amazing thing in itself. The creator of heaven and earth who put the stars up has given us a letter to tell us who he is. Paul says to Timothy that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So we have a God who not only knows us, but desires to be known by us. Additionally, we see about the nature of God that he is a source of wisdom. The psalmist says that it is through his words that he gets understanding. So God is wisdom. We see in his word. Thirdly, that God is righteous, that he's good in nature, because you see, as the psalmist learns what God is saying and understands his precepts and sees the beauty of God, his appetite starts to change from what is evil or what is false. So your appetite for things of the world or false things grow less and less as you know more and more of God's righteousness. Here's a third question we need to ask, and I think this is important. We often fail to do it as Christians. And that third question is, how does this passage show us that we're not like God? We see the righteousness and holiness of God, and then say, that's not us. He's set apart, as Matt said. How does this passage show us how you are unlike God? How have you failed to live up to the standard this passage sets forth? You see this a lot in Scripture. There's not a, there's not a specific command in this, these verses that says do not lie or anything like that. But if we look at it closely and let our guard down, and when you say, When I say you know that I am sure, uh, when I say this to you, know that I'm, uh, I'm speaking to myself as well, is where I let my guard down. You don't cherish the word as you should. It isn't sweet always. You don't seek his word for understanding as you should. You try to get it from your own experiences, your own favorite authors or role models. You seek it from news outlets. Another way we fall short is we don't hate every false way. In fact, we love a lot of them. I think we have to ask ourselves or compare ourselves to the standards set forth in the text. Because if you don't realize you need a Savior, you'll never cry out for one. 
That Savior is Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled what you cannot. He did it on your behalf. The perfect life that he lived is granted to us. Those who repent of their sins and put their faith in him. He took our sin. He took it to the cross, was crucified there as payment for it. And he rose again. And he lives making intercession for us. So as a Christian, dwell on that. Praise God for that. And that was, that's the next question is, is remind ourselves, how has Jesus fulfilled this passage on my behalf? Since I could not, Jesus cherished every word from the Father. He came to do his very will. He didn't seek counsel elsewhere. He got it from God, the Father. And Jesus hated sin perfectly and lived a sinless life. So from taking a few moments to digest these two verses in Psalm 119, two of the almost 200, you see it continues a theme that is throughout all of Scripture, that there is something more desirable to be had than just filling our bellies. That's the word of God. We see that God has been gracious by giving us his word that we might know him. We see how God is a source of wisdom and understanding. That he is good and holy. We see that if we hold this passage up side by side with ourselves, we find ourselves lacking. But that all of scripture points to Jesus and we have salvation in him. So take time as you read, slow down, write out some questions to ask of it. Um, Again, we have resources here if you want to use those. There's other ones as well. But slow down, digest the word of God. So we've read it and we've consumed it. We'll go to point number three, the action that is produced by God's word. That's the second half of verse 104. The psalmist says, therefore I hate every false way. Eating and digestion produces growth that allows the body to function. In the same way, having consumed God's word and understood it, this produces growth in our spiritual lives. We get wisdom, understanding. But it also produces a response. Without the therefore in this verse, you would stop where Maybe a lot of really smart Christians stop. They get lots of books and read lots of things and and then they don't respond to it. There's always a therefore in the scriptures, it seems. The therefore shows us the response to what God has revealed to us. The psalmist's response is that he hates every false way. James Montgomery Boyce, he's a, uh, he had a, a commentary on the Psalms. And he says it this way about this verse. We never learn that anything is really good unless we also learn that its opposite is not good and turn from it. So I know the psalmist kind of ends on a, on a note saying he hates every false way where he starts out the verse by saying he loves. But those, we don't have a love for what is good unless we start to hate what is evil. And we see that in the scriptures.
our response to these verses in God's word is that our hearts change. We are created with desires. Christian's life is not about suppressing all that is bad. Uh, That would leave you empty and wanting, and that's where a lot of Christians find themselves. Christian's life is more about clinging to what is infinitely desirable, and that's Jesus Christ. And we find him revealed in God's word, the Bible. Another quote, C.S. Lewis put it this way, and this may have been said from here before, but it's a good reminder. He puts it this way, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. End quote. So church, don't settle for mud pies. God's word is sweet to the taste. It offers wisdom, understanding, and it increases your desire for good. So as we close, I just want to encourage you again, not as some kind of moral obligation or checklist, but I want to encourage you to make a reading plan, get in God's word. There you'll find food for your soul. I would ask that you pray over it. God grants a desire. Ask questions of it. Read it with others. Find people. Find a small group to join so you can discuss and talk about it. I would end by saying, may the love of Jesus increase until he becomes all and in all. And I'll pray as we close. God, we see in your word that we need you. And God, I just pray for us as a church that we would desire to pick up our Bibles and to know you more and to know your glories, to know your infinite power and to know that you've come down to rescue us. May the words be sweet to our tastes. God, I ask that you forgive us for not seeking you. We've been reminded over and over again of what you offer and who you are, and we continue to put idols in our life. And God, I just pray that you forgive us for that. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life, who fulfilled what we cannot Give us a greater faith in him. Give us a desire to read your word, to know him more. We pray all these things in your name, Father.